That's why everybody's here. Uh, no, it's really good to see everybody. I will be sharing the word tonight. Really excited about that. Uh, before I do that, I have a couple announcements, things going on that you should definitely know about. First and foremost is going to be tomorrow. We are having an impromptu special delivery food distribution. If you've helped us with the food distribution, we usually do that on the second Thursday of every month. We will still do that on the second Thursday of April, but we will be doing a special delivery. The Tarrant Area Food Bank called us and they said, hey, we have some leftover food. Would you guys mind putting something together real quick so that we can uh, get this food out? And of course, we said, yes, absolutely. Um, so with it being a little bit short notice, we don't know what to expect in terms of people showing up. Uh, and we don't know what to expect in the way of people coming to volunteer. So if you are available tomorrow at about, at about 11 o'clock, we ask people who are going to volunteer to be here at the church about 930. We'll pack things up, then head over to Yellow Jacket Stadium. The food distribution usually starts right at about 11, usually ends about 1. We'd love to have you come out. If you've never been out there before, it's a really cool experience. We'd invite you to come and be a part. Uh, the next thing is going to be uh, this uh, Friday, The Furnace, which is a community men's event that's being presented by our men's ministry. We've put together, it's going to be at the Cleburne Civic Center, a conference center, uh, starting at 6 o'clock. Uh, tickets are $15, and there will be a meal included. We'd love for you to come out. This is a men's event uh, with guest speaker um, Jonathan Evans, who is Tony Evans' son. Really, really great speaker, if you're not familiar with him, uh, has a lot of lot to share, and I think it's going to be a great event. So definitely come out. If you have questions about tickets, you can ask me afterwards, and we can, uh, we can talk about that. Um, Saturday is going to be our 12th annual BGMC Buddy Barrel Invitational Golf Tournament. If you're not signed up for that, it's a great opportunity to come up. You can sign up as an individual team or as a sponsor. Again, if you have questions, um, you can talk to me afterwards. And then on April 10th, which is not this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday, our fine arts team is going to be presenting an illustrated sermon, The Bridge, which is a drama. Um, and so that's going to be a really, really great opportunity if you have anybody who has, is uh, maybe looking for a church, maybe has questions about their salvation, be a great opportunity. That will be Friend Day, so please invite your friends and family. That actually brings me right into our topic today. We are going to be talking on the topic of evangelism. Evangelism. So uh, I'm going to open up in prayer real quick, and then we will jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to come together and to study your word. I pray that you would open up new things that we've never seen before, that you would just allow your Holy Spirit to, to speak to us in ways that will change our life moving forward. I pray that you would put in our hearts a passion for reaching your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, with Friend Day and Easter just around the corner, Pastor Mike asked me to put together a teaching on evangelism. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. You know, if you're not familiar, uh, there are certain groups of Christians who they don't typically attend church, but they do attend special times of the year, uh, Christmas and Easter. Sometimes they're referred to as CEOs, Christmas and Easter only, right? They come to church. If they are never in church any other time, a lot of times they will come on Christmas and Easter. So it's a big opportunity for churches to uh, really push out the message of Christ because there are certain people that may never hear it except for those opportunities. One statistic says, uh, suggests that more than half of the nation's adults and children, that's at least 120 million people, will attend an Easter service on Easter Sunday. Um, Interviews with pastors indicate that a 50% to 100% jump in Easter attendance is not uncommon. Can you just imagine for a moment, if you've been at our second service, I think that's a good indication, our second service, can you, can you imagine if one sur uh, Sunday that just doubled in size? We would be busting at the seams to try to fill this place, and it would be incredible seeing people's lives change like that. And so that's why we really push evangelism here, because there is a big harvest out there. And so our text today is Matthew chapter 9, verses 25 through 38. And I'm just going to start here, and then we're going to expound on it a little bit. So verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers 
into the harvest. Now, what does he mean by that? The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Well, we just saw that over 120 million people will be here on Christmas at different uh, different churches on Easter Sunday. So the harvest is plentiful. And we see that in this text, Jesus is looking out at the people that he's ministering to, and he's seeing these droves of people. We know that at least at one time, whenever Jesus fed the 5,000, is how we understand it, that there very well could have been more because typically they would count the men. So there might have been men, women, children. It's easy to say that there might have been 20,000 people following Jesus. So you get this picture of Jesus looking out at the crowd, and he's saying, the harvest is plenty. Look at all of these people who need something from me. But then he looks at his disciples, who he's talking to, and there's 12 disciples, 13 with himself. And you could maybe see the practical implications of that statement, that there's so many people, and then there's just so few of us. But maybe there's something more going on here. We have churches on every corner. Have you noticed that? Especially here in Cleburne, especially here in the Bible Belt. I've been talking to some people who were not from this area, and they are shocked by how many churches we have. In Cleburne alone, I think the count right now is about 90 churches in one city. And then if you were to go out to Johnson County and some of the surrounding, it gets more and more. In the world, get this, in the world, there are 37 million churches 37 million churches. In America alone, there are 380,000 churches. 380,000 churches. Roughly, there are uh, 230 to 250 million people who would attend a church service on any given Sunday in America alone. Does that just blow your mind a little bit to think about those types of numbers? So you look at that and you think, how in the world is the, are the workers few? There's so many of us. There's so many who would claim to be Christians. There's so many who would go out into the, who could go out into the world. But then we look at other statistics. In 1937, 73% of the American population would say that they go to church somewhere. That was in 1937. By 1999, it had only dropped by 3%. Only dropped by 3%. Still really good. 70% in 1999. By 2018, it had dropped from 70% now down to 50% of Americans would say they attend church. Still pretty good. In 2020, which was the last statistic that I could find, it takes time for them to collect all this data, 47%. Now, that's still pretty decent, but consider in, in 1937, it was 73. So that's not a drastic drop, but it is a drop. We are declining. I'm sure COVID had some to do with that, but Church just isn't as much of a priority as it used to be. So there's a decline. So we have all these churches, but there's still a decline. So is it true that the the workers are few? Well, maybe not number, but it does seem to imply that the work isn't being done. Right? Because with so many churches, that number should be going up. Right? We should be increasing the amount of people. So something something's not right here. So what is the work? It says the workers are few. What is the work? Well, if we look at uh, 2 Timothy 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul is talking to one of his disciples who he trained up, who he has now installed at a church. Uh, he's, he's writing a letter to Timothy. This is the second book to Timothy. This is close to Paul's, the end of Paul's life. He's writing to Timothy, kind of writing his final pep talk to Timothy. And he says this very important statement. He says, do... As, but as for you, use restraint in all things. Endure hardship. Here we go. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Another translation says, do the work of an evangelist. And it says, fulfill all of the duties of your ministry. So first of all, he says, do the work of the evangelist. And then there seems to be more. Now, if you look at the construction of that sentence, it's a part and a whole relationship. So doing the work of the evangelist is a part of what he's telling him to do. And it's, so there's more to the duties that he's supposed to carry out. So what might those duties be? Well, as a pastor in that time, uh, caring for the community was a big thing. Feeding the, the poor and needy was another thing. Uh, going and praying for the sick as an elder would be another. But another part of that, we can understand all of us have a very specific duty. And that's found in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen in the Great Commission. Where Jesus says, go into all the world and, say it if you know it, make disciples, right? We're called to make disciples. So, that's a part of it. 
Now, what is evangelism? What is that? We hear that word a lot. Raise your hand if you've heard that word before. I think most of us have. It's a pretty uh, kind of a buzzword within Christianity. Um, evangelism, an evangelist, right? My dad was an evangelist. We traveled from church to church. In fact, I was doing the math the other day, and from the time that I was four years old to the time that I was 11, now we would travel from church to church each week. We lived in a 40-foot fifth-wheel trailer that lived on church parking lots. We would go one Sunday, pack up, go to the next church. People would ask us where home was. We'd point out there. Uh, That's where home was. We didn't have a home base. And so we would go from the time I was four years old to the time that I was 11. My family visited over 200 churches. That was my childhood, seeing these churches firsthand. Uh, whenever we moved uh, to Texas, he became more local. But even in that, I was a part of either on staff, uh, attending, uh, going to church, whatever it might be, at 16 different churches in North Texas alone. So we were a part of a lot of churches and because my dad was an evangelist. He would go, he would preach a message of salvation, of revival to these churches. And uh, so that's part of what an evangelist is. We might be familiar with a street evangelist, someone who stands, if you go down to Fort Worth, downtown Fort Worth, I don't know that I've ever been down there and not seen a street evangelist with tracks passing out to people, uh, spreading the gospel that way. Um, So that's what an evangelist is, but is that what Paul was telling Timothy to do, to travel around and preach or to stand on the street corner, or is there something more to it? Well, the Greek word that we translate as evangelism is the Greek word euangelion, which really just means good news. And specifically good news uh, usually used around uh, pertaining to a king. If there was a new king that had come, a messenger would go out and they would share the good news about this king. So that word was used when talking about the good news of King Jesus. What about an evangelist? It's the same root word, euangelistas, which means bringer of good news. Bringer of good news. So an evangelist is someone who brings good news. Um, So when Paul says, do the work of the evangelist, he's saying, bring good news, but also fulfill all of your duties. So we could break that down. 2 Timothy 4, 4 through 5 could say, bring the gospel, make disciples. Bring the gospel, make disciples. That really sums up what it means to be a minister. And not just a minister, but a Christian. That's what it means to be someone who brings the good news of Jesus and walks people through this discipleship process. Um, Now, it was not strange for people to talk about evangelism. Evangelism is not something that is very specific to Christianity. In fact, the Jewish religion actually had a form of evangelism. Uh, They would practice what was called uh, proselytization. Have you ever heard of that before? Whenever I was a chaplain, we were not allowed to proselytize, which meant we were not allowed to go and share our faith. It's just another word, really the same thing for evangelism. But uh, they... That term kind of came from the way that they would practice it. It comes from the Greek word proselytos, which really just means stranger, stranger. Now, why was that significant? Well, the Jewish religion was wrapped around the idea that the descendants of Abraham had a special covenant with God. And so if you were born within a Jewish home, you were automatically grafted in to that relationship, to that covenant. However, if you were not a Jew, if you were not born into a Jewish home, a descendant of Abraham, which is most everyone in this room, including myself, we were all Gentiles, as it would have been called. We did not come from Abraham, unless maybe you did, but most likely they didn't. So if there were people who were not born into that lineage, they were called Gentiles or proselytos, which is a stranger, a stranger. Now, they weren't just kind of outcast in that they couldn't be helped. The Jews did separate themselves from these people, from the Gentiles, because they felt that they were unclean. They were not God's people. They were not people of the covenant, people of the book. So they were unclean unless they went through the process of proselytization, okay? The process looked like this. Step one, you would be baptized. Step one, you would be baptized, which is what John the Baptist was doing. It was a baptism of repentance. It was not uncommon in that time. If you wanted to become a Jewish uh, practicing person, the first step was baptism, showing that you were claiming, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That Savior is God. I'm being baptized. The second step, though, became a little bit more challenging, and the second step was circumcision. Not a lot of people like to practice that one for obvious reasons. And so a lot of people would stop with baptism. They wouldn't go to the next step, which was common. Um, If you didn't go to that next step, you were referred to as a God-fearer. Okay, You were repentant. You knew that you were a sinner in need of God, but you weren't willing to, to go all the way and take those steps. 
So the Jewish people would, um, they would, they would interact with you. You weren't necessarily unclean, but you weren't allowed to be a part of the community. You were a God-fearer, so they respected that part of it, but they weren't going to let you into the inner circle unless you were going to take those next steps. For those who did go through circumcision, the next step was to practice all of the law and to, and to observe all of the festivals. So days like Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, they would have to practice these things. If they were a Gentile who wanted to become a Jewish person, at least in practice, they had to go through all of these steps. It was very rigorous. It was very difficult. And it was burdensome to try to do. But their belief was if you didn't go through this process, you were lost. There was no hope for you at all. You have to observe these rituals. Um, so that's kind of where we step into our, our story. Jesus was constantly being berated by a group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group who believed that you had to live by the letter of the law. The book says it, so you have to do it. And if you don't do it, not just what the book says, but everything we're telling you to do, then there's no hope for you. Now, why is that significant? So, we know Pastor Mike just went through a whole series on the Ten Commandments, so I'm not going to rehash all of that, but I will just kind of review real quick. God spoke to Moses at the Mount of Sinai, and he gave the Ten Commandments, which were a list of things that he was saying his, that God's people needed to practice, right? And so those commandments became a part of the culture, became a part of the religion, part of the government of that society. When Moses died, Joshua rised up. When Joshua died, judges rised up to make sure that the, that the Ten Commandments were being upheld. Those judges would die and then kings would come about. Saul being the first, then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom was divided. And kings would ensure at first that the law was being upheld, right? As we know from studying scripture, that didn't always happen. And there was actually a time that they had forsaken the law so much that they lost it. Did you know that? They had lost the, the, the original, the ten, they had lost the law, and it was found in the temple. During when King Josiah was, came to reign, it was found in the temple. Somebody said, we found the law, we didn't even know we lost it. They weren't practicing it, it had become so forgotten that it had been stuffed away somewhere. And so now they had to try to relearn what was happening. This, was, this is in 2 Kings, if you're interested in reading more about that. In 2 Kings, they, they found this, they began to practice it, but they, they kind of lost the original understanding of it. And when they went into exile, they really lost it because now they were practicing what the other nations were telling them to practice. When they were let, let back in to their, into their land, and Ezra was the, was the leader, the one bringing all this together. He decided that they weren't going to make this mistake again. And so in Ezra's generation, they said, here's the law, we're going to follow it, but we don't want to make the same mistake again. So we're going to put what they would refer to as a fence around the law. These were actions and requirements that they had to follow in order to not violate the law. So one generation said, here's the law, but these are the stipulations that we, they're man-made, they, they understood that, that we are putting around. It would be like if there was something that I didn't want my one-year-old son to have, so I would close the door to the room that it was in, right? And say, I don't want him to touch it, so he can't even go in that room, right? Well, then the next generation came along, and they said, no, I don't think that's good enough. So they created another system of commandments. So it would be like me saying, closing the room's not good enough, now I'm going to close that side of the house, Right? My son, I don't want him to break that thing, so I'm not even going to let him into that side of the house. Then another generation came along. They did the same thing. So now it would be like me saying, I'm not even going to let my son in the house because I don't want him to break that thing that's on that side of the house in that room because I don't want her to do that. And then it might be, then another generation came along, built another set of fences, and it would be like me moving my son out of the city because I didn't want him in the house, in the side of the house, in the room to break that thing. That was how Things were, were happening. And that fourth generation of fences is a group known as the Pharisees, who now Jesus comes face to face with, which is why he's constantly coming up against them. Because they're saying, no, we, you, you can't do these things. And Jesus is saying, says who? Says you? That's something you made up. There's times in Scripture that, uh, that Jesus will say, you've seen, you've heard it said as opposed to you've seen it written, or it is written. And most scholars believe what he's referring to are the things that were spoken by these Pharisees that God never spoke himself. 
In fact, if you go back and you understand what was actually given at Sinai, it was the word Torah. Torah as we'd know, but Torah in the Hebrew. And it doesn't mean commandments. It doesn't mean law. It's the teachings, the instructions. It wasn't a set of do's and don'ts. It was a list of instructions on how a people could be godly people, how they could reflect God. If you look at the Ten Commandments, really they were the the Decalogue, the Ten Sayings. They weren't do's and don'ts. They were a list of things that reflected the nature of a perfect God, Him calling His people to be perfect like He was. When He gave that to the people, it wasn't don't do these things. It was here is how you can live the life that I want to give you. Now, over time, just like we talked about, things got lost, they got forgotten, man-made things became structured around that, and we, it became so significant, so bad, that um, when the Jewish people were under Roman law, the language had changed, not many people spoke Hebrew like they used to, the common tongue was Greek, just like today the common tongue is English, it was Greek of the time. And they, tr- they translated the original Hebrew Bible into Greek so that the common person could read it. They translated it to what we call the, the Septuagint or the Septuagint. Okay? When they translated the word for Torah, because it had lost its meaning so significantly, the Greek translators used the word nomos, which we would translate as law. And it was commonly used to depict a legal system. So this system had become so convoluted that they missed the idea of it being teaching, they missed the idea of it being instructions, and now they used it as a legal system, which in its essence, it was never completely intended to be. It was used to govern the people, but it was a teaching of how to be like God. Now, if you read in Galatians, the Apostle Paul, he refers to this, and he talks about the heart of the law. He talks about the intention of the law, what the law was actually about. And he doesn't use the word nomos. He uses the word, Greek word, pedagogos, which is the Greek word for teaching or instruction. It was the idea of a person who would lead young school children to school so that they could learn. Now, in my opinion, I've done some study on this. In my opinion, I believe, Paul, being a Greek scholar himself, I believe that he was showing that nomos was not the word that should have been used for Torah. It should have been pedagogos because it's teaching. It's not a legal system of commandments. It's a way that God was communicating to his people what they were supposed to do in reflecting his character. Now, why is that significant? I've taken a lot of time to get back to to Matthew chapter 9 talking about evangelism, but it's very significant. Because the process that the Jewish people used for evangelizing and for proselytizing was taking, not leading people to a place of heart change, it was leading to a place of moral conformity. It was bringing people to a place of saying, if you want to have salvation... Here are the requirements that you have to fulfill before you can come to salvation. It would be like saying, before you can come into the hospital, you have to have a clean bill of health. Before you can have what we're offering you, basically, you have to have already found it, is essentially what was being said. Jesus came with a very different approach to evangelism. And we see that starting here in verse 1. I'm I'm finally getting into, uh, into Matthew here. Into verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee and came to his own city. And they brought him a paralyzed man lying on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And he got up and he went home. And and when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now Jesus healed this man by faith. The faith of those bringing him and the man himself. Why did Jesus say your sins are forgiven? It's always bothered me that here... Why did he say that? It didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But Jesus' ministry of healing is directly connected to his ministry of salvation. I'm a firm believer in divine healing, and I believe that divine healing is for today. But when we read the Gospels and we read what Jesus did, 
There is a deeper spiritual meaning. Yes, Jesus healed the sick, and I believe he does that. But he healed the sick not just for physical restoration. He healed the sick also to show us what he was doing on the inside. That his entire ministry was coming to heal the sickness of our hearts, not just the sickness on the outside of the body, which is why he says your sins are forgiven and why he says it's to show you that I have authority to forgive sins here on earth. Very significant. Um, The Pharisees criticized the method rather than acknowledging the miracle. Now, I grew up, uh, my parents lived in Meridian, Mississippi, and we would often go to the Brownsville Revival. If you're familiar with that, it was a Pentecostal outpouring that happened in 1995 and went on uh, up into about 2000. Um, And we went there a lot. My parents were on the prayer team. We would go, and it was radical the way that people's lives were being changed. But the method was not always the way that you would expect it. Okay, people were being radically changed, but there was a lot of criticism about what was going on. People would say, well, that doesn't fit the mold, so it must not be God, even though people's lives were actually being changed. Uh, They would say, well, we just don't completely agree with what's being taught there. Yes, drug addicts are being freed of their addictions, and, you know, there is healing happening, and people's lives are being changed, but we don't completely agree with the way that somebody articulated that scripture, so I don't know that that's necessarily of God, but you know what it was? Because people's lives were being changed. The fruit is in the result, not just in the methods that we think we're supposed to practice. A few years ago, uh, a singer by the name of Kanye West came out as a Christian. Now, I don't know if it was legitimate or not. Frankly, I don't care. The fact is, it, it showed the heart of a lot of Christians. Because what we saw was a person who all of a sudden began to profess Christ. And I heard a lot of people saying things like, I just don't think that that's legitimate. I don't think that God has really done a work in his life. And I remember one person saying, I think he is just using that in order to kind of pump himself up and for his own fame. And I remember thinking, you know, that would sure be good if there was a place in Scripture that spoke to that. Well, there happens to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. It says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointing for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they are causing me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and and in that I rejoice. Now, why did I go into that? Because you know what? I don't really care about the method that people come to Christ. This is what I care about, that people come to Christ. That's what I care about. The heart of evangelism says everywhere the gospel is preached. There's a big kind of mega church, Life Church, if you're familiar with them. They, they're based in Oklahoma, but they have churches all over the place. Craig Rochelle is their pastor. One of their values, and I, I love it, one of their values is to reach people that no one else is reaching. We'll do things that no one else is doing. We'll learn how to share the gospel, bear burdens, and break rules. Anything short of sin to lead people to Christ. Now, if that isn't the heart of evangelism, I don't know what is. That you are willing to do whatever it takes, even if people criticize your methods, even if they criticize the way you go about it, even if it goes against, like they say, breaking rules. Whose rules? I don't know, but breaking rules in order to lead Christ. That's the type of heart that we need to have here at Bethel Temple as people come in on Friend Day. That's what evangelism is, and that's what we need to adopt. Now, moving on into our our scripture, Uh, this is verse 9 through verse 13 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's office. And he said said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and began dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with these tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, is it not those who are healthy? It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. For I did not come to to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, why is the calling of Matthew wedged between a list of healing miracles? We'll see more that this is a list of miracles. And in this is wedged this one moment where God call, or Jesus called a tax collector. Why is that wedged in there? And I really think the significance of this is that the whole purpose of this list of physical healings is primarily to show 
that salvation and healing are directly connected. That what he's doing is he's healing the outside, but he's also healing the inside. That in this instance, we don't read that Matthew was sick, but he was sick on the inside. He was a tax collector. And without getting into all of that for time's sake, basically tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth. They were just downright, nobody liked them. The Jewish people did not believe they needed to pay taxes to the Roman government. So the, Jew, so the tax collectors <clears throat> were Jewish people who had really sold out. They had gotten a job with the government, and they were collecting taxes. So they saw not only were they collecting taxes for the enemy, but most of them were also thieves who would add on taxes that weren't required by the Roman government. Roman government didn't care about this as long as they got their money. So the Romans didn't really like them because they were Jewish people, and the Jewish people didn't like them because they had essentially sold their souls to the devil in their views. Um, So this tax collector is being called by Jesus. No rabbi in his right mind would have ever talked to a tax collector. But here's Jesus calling one to come and follow him. Not only that, but now he's sitting in that tax collector's house. And there's tax collectors and sinners coming from all around to recline with Jesus. Now on a side note, here's what I want to say. Why? What's the significance of this? When you reach out to one person that nobody else wants to reach out to, a lot of other people are going to take notice. A lot of other people are going to see, wow, there's a church where I'm not going to have judgment. There's a church where people actually care about me. Yes, they know about all of the things that I've done, but they still want to find me. When you open that door, it'll open the floodgates of people coming in looking for a church after they've been so hurt everywhere else. That's what we want to see here. They say, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors? Jesus is reaching people that the Jewish religion was unable to reach, and yet the Pharisees were more focused on ritual than restoration. They didn't care about the fact that these people's lives were being turned around. They didn't care about that. They cared about the fact that it wasn't within their systems and structures. Jesus said something here that completely turns the Pharisees' philosophy on its head. He said, it is those who are healthy who need a physician. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Again, they thought you needed to have the boxes checked before you could be considered worthy of stepping into their, into their religion. Jesus said, no, come as you are. Come exactly how you are today. Bring you in. I, I'll do the work. Just come in. Now, I, I, I love this. He says, go and learn what this means. Now, these are brilliant, brilliant men who have studied the law. You know, this would be like going up to a college professor and taking something rudimentary to them and saying, hey, learn what this means. Right? It's, it's kind of a jab in a way because they thought they knew. But he specifically says, <clears throat> learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He's actually quoting Hosea 6.6 6, where God says the same thing because what was being practiced was just a rote uh, ritual rather than something from the heart. And they were practicing the ritual rather than being compassionate to their fellow man. Now, two words here in the Hebrew that are very significant. The first word is hased, which is what we translate for compassion or mercy. Hased is goodness and mercy specifically toward our fellow man. Specifically toward our fellow man. The word for sacrifice is Allah, which is burnt offering. He says, I want to see compassion towards your fellow man, not this ritual that you've conjured up, not this thing that you do, trying to gain moral perfection before God. You've missed the point. The whole point of everything that I've done for you, everything that I've given you by calling you out of the world is so you could have compassion on the world, not just to stand in your own uh, ego saying, look what we've done. We, we have burnt offerings and we do everything Right, the Jewish people since Sinai have missed the point of the covenant. God wasn't just calling a people to act a certain way. He was leading a group of sinners toward purification of the heart. All throughout scripture, even in the Old Testament, evangelism was a vital part of God's plan. Now, I could spend weeks on this point alone. But throughout the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, in the book, uh, in all of the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the, in the Kings, Chronicles, all of those, there is a constant theme of evangelism. When God called Abraham out, when he called people out of Egypt, the, it was constantly with the idea that they would be set apart for the purpose of saving the world not just to be set apart from the world. There's parts in Scripture all the time that talk about being a city on the hill, 
God called Abraham out so that he could be a blessing to all nations. The purpose of what he did for Israel was for the world as a whole, not just to have a people outside that he blessed and everybody else just fell apart. It was to say, look what happens when I take a people and I bless them. That's what you can have. And instead of opening the door and freely giving what the Israelites had freely received, they made it harder. They made it more challenging. They said, you can, but here's the hoops that you have to jump through. Here's the things that you have to do. You have to jump over backwards while gargling peanut butter and dancing a flaming hoop. They said, you have to do the impossible, even though we got it for free. Because we just happen to be born into this family. We do that pretty often too, don't we? We've all been given a free gift, but sometimes we don't act like it. Moving on to verses 18 through 19. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will become alive again. Jesus got up from the table and began to occupy him along with his disciples. Now, really significant stuff. Could spend a lot of time digging into this. I won't. But a couple of things I wanted to point out. This is a synagogue official. Now, the Pharisees, who were respected men of the word, respected men of the law, were challenging a rabbi that they considered to be heretical. And a synagogue leader comes up runs right past them. He should be on their side. He's not. He runs right past them and goes to the man that they're criticizing and says, I need your help. Now, big, big thing there. He's siding with the enemy and for all intents and purposes. Moreover than that, this synagogue official was a very respected man who would not, it doesn't say he just ran up and said, hey, when you have a moment, I'd like to have a meeting with you in my office. He bowed down before him, which was a sign of respect and reverence. No synagogue official would have ever bowed down before a lowly rabbi, a lowly teacher, yet he did. He humbled himself before this man, not only this man who's only a rabbi, but this man who's being on, basically on trial for heresy among these respected officials. He is pushing everything aside because he has a need. He doesn't care what he looks like. His daughter just died. He is coming to Jesus because there's something that he needs. It says, and behold, so he's on his way now. It says, Behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched him, the border of his cloak. For he was saying to her, if, I only if she was saying to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. Now the hierarchy of Jewish society would not have allowed synagogues leaders to bow before rabbis or unclean women to touch a man. Lame, blind, or paralyzed, demon-possessed people to approach a teacher. Now, this woman, scholars believe, she was basically having a, a menstrual cycle that lasted all month long. So it was continuous bleeding, which based on uh, the Levitical law, she would have been considered unclean all the time. And a woman who was going through that was not allowed to touch a man because if she touched a man, she would make him unclean. Most men in that time would not allow, another, would not allow a woman to touch them ever for fear of becoming unclean. Yet this woman brushes through the crowd because of her condition. She should have never been in a crowd of people based on the law. She came through and she touched this man. She broke every law associated with what she was going on because she had a need. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. Those who need Jesus aren't concerned with formality. Those who need Jesus don't really care what they look like. They don't really care what rules they break. They're coming to Jesus because you know what? They know that there's something to be had in touching him. There's something to be had in coming here. And I've got to tell you just from experience, one of the coolest things to see is a new believer who is so in love with Jesus that they lose sight of what others think. Those who are passionate in their worship because all they can care about is the change that takes place in their lives. It seems like we all start out this way, passionate about what God has done in and through us. But over time, we learn to be respectable, ordered members of the church. Now, I'm not knocking order. Obviously, God is a God of order. But somewhere along the process, it seems that we lose sight of how marvelous of a gift that we've been given. New believers don't care about the style of worship. They don't care about how good or bad the preaching is. They aren't connoisseurs of the church who leave because they aren't getting fed. They are passionate and hungry, and they will find spiritual food wherever they can, not waiting for it to be brought to them on a polished silver platter. The people that we read about in this text were more desperate for a touch of God that only Jesus could bring, than they, and they, they weren't about to allow that moment to pass. Setting aside the formality, they passionately pursued Jesus. 
If we want to see a move of God, then we are going to have to open up the altars and make room for the world to come in, baggage and all. And it's not always going to be pretty. It's not always going to be ordered. It's not always going to fit our structure. Again, back to the Brownsville Revival, I saw people come in who were demon-possessed. I was young, but I'll never forget it. I saw people come in, and they were not the kind of people that you want in your church. Okay, they had satanic symbols all over them, tattooed and necklaces. They were not the kind of people, if they walked in our door, we would be, okay, where's Larry Newton? We need somebody to take care of this real quick, right? Because they were not the people that we want to come in. But they were the people who needed Jesus because the church is there for them more than it really is even there for us. We have the answer. We have the answer. I love watching movies uh, I just, I enjoy that. In fact, uh, years ago, before I felt the call to ministry, I wanted to go to film school because I just enjoy movies. And I remember whenever Netflix first came out, and back then it was just, you know, you went online and you clicked the movie that you wanted, they sent you a disc. And that was cool because you only got one every month or whatever. And they, a lot of movies that I hadn't seen before, I hadn't watched, and it was really exciting. Then they came out with live streaming, right? And you could go on there and watch whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted. And honestly, it kind of lost its significance because now if my wife and I are going to watch a movie, I don't even like to look because there's just so much. There's just so much to find. And, And sometimes that's how I feel we are toward the church. When it was new, when it was fresh, whenever we didn't know all the details about our theology, it was just, it was raw. And we loved it. And we found whatever we could, wherever we could. Because it was rich and it was new. Then we get to the point where it's just a commodity. I know where I can go to church, especially here, here in America. We don't have to face persecution, not like other places. We don't have to face and feel what it's like to risk your life to come to church. We can wake up on a Sunday morning and say, well, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. It's really not going to make much of a difference. We don't really know what it's like to pay the price for our faith. Not really. It becomes a commodity. We lose sight of the significance. New believers, they haven't, they haven't lost that. It's still fresh. I, I've, I've prayed with people on the altar who have just recently given their life to God. And, and as they begin to express what they don't know how to express, their language is vulgar and they just they say what they say and they're dropping F-bombs and it's just it's ugly, but it's also beautiful because they aren't filtered, but they're raw. Because all they know is that they have been touched by the hand of an almighty God who loved them. And sometimes we water it down because, well, we've got to look a certain way. I'm not condoning dropping F-bombs. Don't hear me wrong. I'm just saying in that moment, it's raw. And sometimes we've lost the rawness of worship. Sometimes we care about more about the style of, of the music than we do about just allowing ourselves to be open vessels and allow God to touch us. Speaking of movies, you might have seen the movies where it starts off with a really wealthy person and they have a a beautiful penthouse somewhere in New York or something and it's clean and it's pristine and it's it's perfectly put together. And then somewhere during the movie, uh, they find a a child that they didn't know they had and they come in or something happens and all of a sudden that penthouse becomes a disaster, right? And it just becomes wrecked. I think about the game plan with Dwayne Johnson. He has a daughter he didn't know about and this penthouse is destroyed by the end of the movie. And it's just, it's, it's, to me, it's this idea that uh, that's, that's what God wants to happen in his house. He doesn't want a pristine house. He doesn't want a designer home. He doesn't want everything to be put together all the time. He wants people to come in who are going to mess things up a little bit. He wants to sit at the table with tax collectors and sinners. He wants people to push through the crowd to come get him because they don't care. They don't care about what other people think. They don't care about those things. Jesus doesn't want a designer home. When God begins to move, the house starts to get messy. When a revival breaks out, the multitudes come in, and we have to open up outreach programs to meet the needs of the community. I'm thankful that what I'm about to share is not this church by any means, but I've been a part of churches where strange individuals would come in who need Jesus, and I would watch as the staff would draw straws of who was going to take them on to lunch because they were a little bit too peculiar, because their hair was pink and they had too many tattoos. I've gone to conferences where 
not an exaggeration. Sessions were taught on how to keep your front row with the most attractive people. Why you should have ushers remove women with crying babies because they're disruptive. This is the state of our church. Not our church. This is the state of the church in America. I'm thankful that we have a pastor who has a heart for the lost. And I'm thankful that we have a church that understands evangelism. But I'm telling that we're going to have an influx of people come in, I believe, in the next couple weeks. And we have to be ready because that's not necessarily going to be pretty. And it's not going to be the people coming in off the streets that we necessarily want coming in the streets. It might cause some uh, cause concern. It might cause us to be a little bit uh, pulled back. And are we sure we really want these people in our church, right? But that's who we're called to serve. I've always thought to these pastors who want to remove people from their pulpits or from their front row, you need to be careful who you restrict from your table before you forget who allows you to sit at theirs. You know, when Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick, he wasn't trying to say that the Pharisees weren't sick. He wasn't trying to say that they were righteous. He was trying to say, I can't help you because you don't understand where you are. At least this tax collector does. At least this tax collector understands the sin in their own life. At least they want to pursue something and they aren't looking for a process. They're looking for a person. Moving on now back to our text today in verse 36 through 38. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. My invitation today is don't get so caught up in the ritual that you lose sight of the calling. Don't become so focused on staying clean that you can't get your hands dirty. We have to evangelize. We have to get out of our comfort zone and we have to go to where people are. That's why we have the food distribution. Because the people who come, they don't, most of them don't attend our church. They're people who are in desperate need. From, for the, from a physical perspective, they're in desperate need of food. But we understand that they're in desperate need of spiritual food. And that's an opportunity for us to speak into them. I'm usually kind of running point behind the scenes. But I've talked to Pastor Brent who's up front. And he's talked about some of the most incredible prayers he's had with people in their cars as they're waiting. That's what we do. That's what evangelism is. That's what, that's what we need to do. And we can't hold back from going to those dark places. Jesus didn't. He went to the places that were going to ruin his reputation. He went to the places with people who were unclean. And we don't practice Levitical law in our nation, but we all know that there are certain individuals in our community, and our cities, that we would consider unclean people that you wouldn't associate with, right? They need Jesus. We need to embrace the people who walk in our doors. We need to embrace those who come in looking for Jesus. And when these altars open, we need to make sure they feel open. I've talked to so many people who will never step foot in a church again. God forbid, but they probably won't. Because when they came in, they were pushed out. Not by people saying, get out, but by the way that people looked at them. By the way that they didn't embrace them. I'll never forget one of the most incredible moments in my life, so formative. Uh, after the Brownsville Revival, my parents pastored a church in Granite City, Illinois. Granite City, Illinois sits in uh, East St. Louis, Right, so it's right on the edge of Illinois and, and Missouri. And St. Louis is right on the corner. We would have just crazy, crazy things happen in our church. Uh, gangs would come and try to recruit, all, all kinds of stuff. But it was not uncommon during a Sunday morning service for people to come in off the street, people who were homeless, looking for food, looking for something, some kind of help. And on a Sunday morning, a couple came in, and they, they were looking for somebody. My mom, being the pastor's wife, went and talked to them. And she's always dressed nice, just her personality. That's just how she is, uh, very put together. And, and she talked to them and said, well, why don't you guys come into the service? And they looked at what she was wearing, and they said, then looked at themselves and said, we, we couldn't go in there. We don't look anything like you. And I remember, I was about seven at the time, and I remember her saying, I hated what I was wearing because I made them feel like they couldn't come in. Uh, even in that, her, her heart was in the right place, but even in that, and I'm not saying we need to not dress nice, I'm just saying 
if that caused people to leave, how much more would, it, would a glance at them the wrong way or anything that would cause them to feel like they're not welcome here? We have to embrace people. The Pharisees failed to bring about true life change because they placed unnecessary burdens on the shoulders of others. The world is a dark place, but the church is not designed as a fortress that keeps the darkness out. It's a light meant to cast out the darkness. We can't do that from a defensive position. Evangelism is our offensive position. Jesus said, I've built my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's not saying you just sit back and I'm going to protect you. He's saying go into the world and I'll keep you safe. Go into the world and I'll keep you safe. You know what? When those people come in here, they're going to have a life change. But you know what? Not everything's going to change. Not everything about their personality is going to instantly change. And sometimes that's what we expect. We expect that all of a sudden they clean up their language. They clean up all of their lifestyle. They stop doing anything we don't approve of. And that in and of itself is part of what pushes them away. Because we're saying, just like the Pharisees, if you're going to be a part of the club, you got to act like it. But you know what? We were a part of the club before we acted like it because it's all found in Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be a hospital, but so many churches make it a country club. If you don't fit the bill, if you don't check the boxes, you're not welcome. That's not who we're going to be here because we have people who need a Savior, and we have that answer. We have a place that people can find refuge, that people can find safety in a non-judgmental environment. I am in no way saying that there is not a standard of holiness, but I am saying that Jesus, when he met these people, met them where they were, and he walked them toward that point, just like he's doing in my life, just like he's doing in your life. And just because we've been at it a little bit longer, and we've matured a little bit further, and we might not deal with the same things that people who walk in that door are dealing with, doesn't mean that our stuff is any better than theirs. We need to be patient. We need to walk them through. We need to be non-judgmental. We need to set an example. And we need to not be afraid that their sin is going to taint us because that's not how it works. Jesus dealt with some of, the, some of the filthiest people, but you know what? He kept his integrity, and so can we because the same God who raised him from the dead is living in us, setting us free. So when they come in, we may not like the way they smell. We may not like the things they do. We may not understand the way they dress, but they are in need of a Savior just like me and just like you. Let's not get so caught up in the ritual and doing things right and maintaining our image that we aren't able to embrace the people who walk in that door. In the next few weeks, I truly believe, and Pastor Mike truly believes, that we are going to see souls that this church has never seen before. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And I believe this message was given to me so that we could come together and prepare for that and get ready to embrace those who need to be embraced. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible church here in Cleburne, Texas. And I pray that you would allow us to embrace the world the way that you want to embrace the world. I pray that you would give us your heart for the lost. You would give us your heart for those who need a Savior. That you would not allow us to push anybody away who needs to hear the message of your cross. I pray that you would check us if we are a little bit concerned about people coming in. That you'd check our hearts if we don't feel like someone fits the bill. I pray that you'd ready us for the harvest. You say the workers are few, and they certainly are. And I would say, here we are, God, use us. Use us to reap the harvest. I pray that this would be a, a welcome place to embrace those who need to be embraced. Help us to be patient, just like you're patient with us. Help us to live by the verse that he who started a good work in them will see it through to completion. Lord, I pray that you would continue to challenge our heart with this word and that you would encourage us that even when it gets rough, even when it gets tough, that you're there with us and this is what you've called us to do. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
Once again, we will be having the food distribution tomorrow. If you're able to join us, we would love to have you there. It's a really cool experience, and we'd love to see you. If not, we will see you Sunday morning, and looking forward to it. Have a good night.